You are listening to a Cold Lake Community Church podcast. We hope today's message inspires you. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families connect. This morning, we're going to be looking at peace and joy kind of together. Traditionally, you would light one candle a week, but I'm not going to be here next week, um, next Sunday, and Pastor Hayward is not continuing on with this Advent series. So I'm going to light the uh, peace as well as the joy candle today, hopefully, maybe. Oh. I'll do it this way. Maybe. Well, there we go. That's why I put a silver tray under there. A wax keeper. Awesome. Well, peace and joy. They're two things that are synonymous with the Christmas season, aren't they? That even those that don't have a Christian background, those who do not know Jesus often think about Christmas as that special season of the year where people are maybe more generous than they might be the rest of the year, where, um, you know, people do different things. Like, I remember every year when I was growing up, our family would um, give to the local kind of turkey donation. I don't know if it was through the food bank or not. It was orchestrated through our local mall. But we'd go and we'd always donate to the kind of the turkey drive in the city of Calgary. And I remember one particular year, I don't know if we did this more than once, but my brother and I used to get so excited because the Sears Christmas wish book would come in the mail. And like my mom would dread that day. Um, Because we'd go like, she'd ask us what we want for Christmas and we might have like two or three things. Then after flipping through that book, our list was like a mile high. But I remember one year that my mom was just kind of like, wow, you guys have a, a really big list this year. And then she was reminding us that we have a dollar amount that she's spending on each kid, and that's, that's as much as we can ask for. But um, once we made our list, my mom made us choose the thing on our, on our list, that one of the things that we wanted the most. And we chose that item, and then we went to the mall, and we bought that item and donated it to the to- toy drive, and we didn't get it for Christmas. And um, at the time, I didn't feel so, so generous in the moment. But on reflecting on it now, I think, what an amazing thing. What an amazing thing, you know, that she would have done something like that. But it just showed us, you know, that Christmas really, it is better to give than receive. And um, some other kid out there was, was blessed with my deepest desire of what I wanted for Christmas that year. And I can rest assured that it made someone just as happy as it would have made me. But um, that's what it's all about. You know, this morning, I want to look briefly at the context in which God promises the Messiah, specifically um, through the book of Isaiah. But also, I want to uh, touch a little bit on the Christmas story as well. Well, Isaiah was, was a preacher who lived about 700 years before the time of Christ. You know, at this time in history, the people who lived in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of, of Judah were suffering quite greatly. 
Their cousins to the north in the kingdom of Israel were being massacred by the Assyrians, and they were threatening to invade Jerusalem. You know, the people of Israel were hungry. Their food supplies being cut off. They were terrified, and they were being oppressed. You know, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah and promised to those who live in Jerusalem that he would not abandon them. He said that he, they would suffer for a while, but eventually God would bring them a Messiah. A Messiah was an anointed one, a man who would be the ruler of Israel and lead them into a time of peace. He would be a king from the line of King David, and they would call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. The Hebrew word shalom is the word for peace that, that many of us would recognize. And, um, you know, often when we think about peace, we think about a sense of deep contentment or maybe even the absence of war and conflict. But shalom, the word from the Bible, is so much deeper than that. And shalom is, 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 is so much more encompassing than the English sense of the word. Um, according to Strong's Concordance, shalom means completeness, wholeness. It means health, peace, welfare, perfectness, fullness, rest, harmony, and the absence of agitation and discord. But so often, when the word is used in the context of peace in the Bible, it's talking about a completeness and a wholeness that God is going to bring into the lives of broken people. You know, I don't know if any of you have ever been involved in making a mosaic. I remember in art class in maybe grade seven or grade eight, and um, we made some plates, some of these different colored plates, and a bunch of them got broken um, in the process of being made. And so the next day, our, our teacher decided to take a bunch of these broken plates, we'll smash them up, and we'll make these, these mosaics. And um, what's amazing that even though I know for sure my plate looked pretty horrific. Um, but after parts of my plate and other people's plates were all put together, it was this beautiful thing that looked better than any one plate that we had made. None of us in this art class exactly were, were, were exactly artists. I think we, it was kind of, we just thought, okay, which, which time slot would be the easiest to you know, get credits for and just move on? It was about half this class. Um, but um, the mosaic was beautiful. And um, you know, that's what it's kind of about. God takes the brokenness of our lives and he comes in and he fulfills, brings a fulfillment in us through his Holy Spirit. And he takes the broken pieces of our life and he mends them together in him and he makes us whole once we have a restored relationship with God once again. You know, many people search for fulfillment happiness and contentment in material possessions and money in sex, entertainment, leisure activities, you know, it's what we're all about. And, you know, whenever I, you know, I'm feeling, feeling a little bit depressed or sad one day, I reflect on the, how much of my life I get to spend doing leisure-like activities. You know, putting on a Netflix show and watching it with the kids, going to the pool, going bowling, going to a movie, which we did for youth the other night. And, um, you know, these are amazing opportunities and fun things to do. 
But we live in such affluence that so much of my time gets to be spent doing things like that. I get to focus on, on leisure activities. And, and you know, it's, it's such a blessing. But these things ultimately do not fulfill us. You know, they, they can distract us. They can make us feel good for a moment. But these things do not sustain. The movie that I saw at 10 years old does not fulfill me now today. The things that I did for fun as a kid, even though they're great memories, that is not the thing that keeps me going and feeding my life today. You know, ultimately these things serve to distract us and prevent us, preventing us from finding peace because often they're in so much excess that it breeds discontentment in our lives. That we look at what other people have, what other people are experiencing, and then we look at our life and it makes us feel horrible about our own lives. You know, and, and I think that's one of the downfalls of social media is that so often we post this idealistic life, this life of, that we want to live where we take our highlight reel of our life and we photograph it and we share it with the world. And it's often a very artificial or, or a very incomplete picture of our life. You know, the, the, the picture of, of you know, the, the table and the kids are all eating nicely and what they don't see is 30 seconds later just the table being a mess and, and you know, the kid with pasta sauce all down his shirt. Um, but for that split second that that photo was taken, it looked like just peace and harmony in that household. You know, there's only one true way to obtain shalom, and that is through God, through the person of Jesus Christ. You know, he takes the broken piece of our lives and put it back together again. You know, shalom is something that comes from God the Creator who came to us 2,000 years ago as a little baby. You know, Isaiah 7.14. You know, Isaiah told the people how they could identify the Messiah. And he said, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. You know, seven years after the writing of Isaiah, a young woman named Mary is pregnant. She's pregnant with a baby that was conceived through a miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit. And I want to pick that up here in chapter 2 of the book of Luke. Uh, if anyone's wondering, I happened to choose a new Revised Standard Version um, to read from this morning. Uh, Luke 2, 1 to 3, it says, In those days a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration taken by Quirinius, the governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. You know, I, I thought it was interesting when I was first reflecting on this, this verse that how much, you know, historical fact is in the Bible. You know, a lot of times some, some people wonder, you know, is, is what's written in the Bible, is it, is it really historical? Well, interesting here, Luke gives us, we have in the book of Luke here, all these different details about the time period in which this world census was taking place. You know, it's kind of funny, I say world census because to the Romans, what was ever, what was part of Rome was the whole known world. And obviously it wasn't the, world, the entire world. There was regions of the world that they didn't even know existed. But to them it was the, the known world at the time was the entire world. And um, they had this huge census, you know. And, um, but it gives us some cool details. Like we know that it was during the time of Emperor Augustus. We know that it was when um, Crinius was the governor of Syria. 
um, which is really cool. I know for anyone that are history history buffs, you'd know that um, that Emperor Augustus was the what was he the great nephew of Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar is very famous. People know him. Shakespeare wrote about him. There's, he's, he's a historical figure that most people would recognize his name. And um, he was assassinated in 44 BC. And about 20 years later, um, his, great grand, his great nephew, who is listed in his will as his heir apparent, who is also uh, his adopted son, um, becomes the next uh, emperor of Rome. And his, his name was Gaius Octavius, and uh, upon uh, becoming the emperor, his name was changed to Caesar Augustus in 63 AD. But it's really cool to me that there are these historical details written um, in, in the Word of God that we read about and, and that they can be trusted. And um, so here we go. So um, get back to the text here. Um, the emperor has demanded that there be a census of the whole known world of the Roman Empire. And it says that Joseph went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judah, to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was descended from the house and the family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. You know, it's so interesting that often when an angel of the Lord would come, people's response would be complete terror complete terror, and often they would fall to the ground. And so this angel comes, and, and these poor shepherds are just terrified. Then Luke 10, it says, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. You know, I love this little text here, what the angel says, that I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is to be Messiah the Lord. And what's so cool about it is, is, is this the gospel message right there, isn't it? That God sent his son. It's good news to all people that the birth of the Savior was about to take place, had just taken place. You know, this angelic visitation really was a declaration of the gospel that was going to be fulfilled in Jesus' life. You know, the, it continues on in verse 12. This will be a sign for you, the angel says to the shepherds. You'll find a child wrapped in bands of cloth, laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. You know, often when we think about the Christmas story, we view it as a quaint, feel-good story. You know, we often reflect on the spiritual side of Christmas and the birth of Jesus in a sentimental way. But the story of the birth of the Savior was really a revolutionary thing. 
You know, it was the beginning of God establishing his kingdom here on earth. You know, the angel that appeared to the shepherds made a bold declaration with wide-sweeping implications, not only spiritually, but politically and sociologically as well. You know, the angel said to him, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You know, so often I've, I've heard these titles that have been given to Jesus in the Word. And you just kind of gloss over them sometimes and don't give them a whole lot of thought. But this title that they gave to this newborn baby, Christ the Lord, was hugely significant. You know, that, that the names that these angels are declaring over this little baby of, of a carpenter and a peasant girl are a kingly title. A kingly title. You know, the term Jesus is Lord in the Greek is, is Jesus Kyrios. And, you know, this term is really significant. The people of Israel were expecting a king from the line of David to establish and rule in Israel, but not only there, but the entire world. You know, the Savior, Christ the Lord, was the promised Messiah who would come and establish his throne in all the earth. And the Jewish people were expecting the establishment of God's kingdom to overtake the Roman Empire that currently occupied their nation. They expected a great military and political leader that would overthrow the Romans and would lead them um, for a thousand years. You know, the Roman sense here, Lord, you know, this term was used uh, for a master or lord of an estate. But it was also a term that was used to honor and describe the emperor of Rome. His title was Caesar Kyrios, which means Caesar's Lord. And it's a term that everybody in the Roman Empire would have known. The emperor would send out messengers on horseback throughout the empire declaring glad tidings or good news after a great, great um, victory in battle. And so this term, Lord, and good news combined was like a war chant. It was like, we've been successful in military victory. And it would go out through all the corners of the empire. And now this young baby, this, the same terminology used to describe the Caesar's victory is now being used to describe the birth of a little child who is called king. You know, this, this birth of this child had a lot of significance to the Jewish people. You know, but the establishment of a king that did not submit to the authority of Rome also had huge political implications uh, for the Romans. And this was ultimately the charge against Jesus to Pontius Pilate, that Jesus claimed to be a king of the Jews, that somehow he was going to usurp and overtake the Roman Empire. You know, here I, I love these words that I'm bringing you good news of great joy for all people because it's a gospel message. You know, and the Greek word used here throughout the New Testament that we often read this translated good news or, or glad tidings or gospel is this, this word here, euganglion. And it's the same word that's used here at the birth of Jesus. And it's the same word that, that we read as good news or gospel throughout the New Testament. You know, a term that the Romans would have recognized as a war chant is now once again being used for the birth of this child who is not a descendant 
of Caesar. It's interesting, you know. When I was I was reading about this and you know and, and praying about it, you know, I, I was reading in, in the Gospel of Mark and I noticed that the opening of Mark is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And, you know, it's one of those texts that often you just kind of skim over. You're like, oh, yeah, that's a nice little opening to the gospel message. But the book of Mark is, is widely recognized as, as likely the earliest gospel written. And um, here, this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, like I said, this was a term Rather than being the good news of Lord Caesar, it's now the good news that they are declaring of the Lord Jesus. But this term here, the Son of God, I didn't understand it until recently, but the term Son of God was actually a Roman imperial title. So Julius Caesar had declared himself to be a god. He self-declared himself to be deity. And after him... The next reigning Caesars, which would be Augustus, held the title Son of God. They were, they were the sons of Julius Caesar. And, um, and so this was really quite a provocative term for the, for the empire to be used. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know, what's, what's so amazing about this was that you know, really what he's saying here is that it's not Jesus, it's not the Roman emperor. He's not the son of God. He just self-declared himself the son of God. He's not really the highest authority in the land. The real truest authority in all the land, in all the world, is Jesus. Advent is a season of preparation for the coming of the Lord as a reading for the revolution of the Lordship of Christ over all the earth. You know, it begins in our lives, in our hearts, when we recognize for us the Lordship of Christ in our own life, that I am not no longer going to be the Lord of my life, but I'm going to surrender my life to God. I'm going to receive Him, and I'm going to choose to follow Him. You know, so often humanity is driven to follow the ways of men. You know, even the people of Israel rejected God's wanting to rule over them as king and instead wanted to have an earthly king like the other kingdoms of the earth. They wanted to have a man that they could point to. You know, the birth of Christ and the gospel that would accompany the Messiah showed the world that Jesus was the only way to the Father. He wasn't just a way. He wasn't the better way. Jesus said, I am the only way. And in this way, truth in and of itself is exclusive. You know, the birth of Christ in the gospel that we read about, that we preach about, that we've accepted and, and, and base our, our spiritual lives on, um, you know, we recognize that Jesus is the only way to the Father. You know, in the Christmas story, you know, last year, I read this, uh, this little story about the gospel message. And I wanted to share it with you guys again. And um, just to give us some perspective of why maybe God fulfilled the promise of the Messiah in the way that he did. And, you know, sometimes we don't always understand why God does what he does. Sometimes 
uh, like Elaine said, he works in mysterious ways and does things differently than we would would do it if we were, you know, if we had a magic pen that could rewrite history and make things happen. But I thought this story just really t talks about the heart of God and, and why he came to earth as a man. So one Christmas several years ago, a family was preparing for the Christmas Eve service, except, except for the man of the house. He never really understood the reason for the season and refused to attend worship services at the, their local church. Each year, his wife would round up the kids, and they would go to the service on December 24th, but her husband always stayed home. This particular year, after the family had driven off to church, the man prepared a cup of tea, turned on the light by his favorite chair in his living room, and settled himself in, in front of their picture window, to read the newspaper. A winter storm began to blow, and he comforted himself, knowing that his family had taken their better vehicle to the church service that evening. His reading was interrupted, though, by a bang on his picture window. Though he could hardly see anything outside his window, he began to realize that this continual thud that was hitting his window was birds, that there was a storm that had started outside that, that was almost blinding. He couldn't even see out to his back shed. And these birds were getting disoriented and flying into his window. The man looked out the window, saw the blowing snow and the birds fluttering in a dazed condition on the ground. The man wondered why these little birds didn't fly to their nests or somewhere warm, somewhere where they could stay out of the wind. But then he remembered his old barn. This barn was in poor condition, but the light still worked, and the old wooden walls would provide protection from the fierce winds. If the man could get these birds into the barn, they might be able to survive the storm. So the man bundled, bundled himself up, and against the strong gusts, he headed out the back door of his house. He struggled through growing drifts and biting cold to reach the barn door. With difficulty, he pulled the door open and turned on the light. But it's as though the birds did not notice that this new refuge had been created for them. They continued to fly against the picture window. Thud, thud. Trying to get the birds into the barn became a fixation for this man. He tried to shoot the birds into the barn, but they, would nearly, but they would simply scatter into the trees as he got close. Next, he tried to tr a trail of breadcrumbs that led from the window to the barn doors, but the crumbs would quickly blow away in the wind. He sprinkled some grain near the door of the barn, but the snow quickly covered up the seeds. Finally, the man lamented, if only I could become a bird. If I were one of these little ones, then maybe I could lead them to the safe place. Maybe I could save them if I was one of them. The bells of the old church began to chime, marking the end of the evening service. As the peal of the bells reached his ears, the man, for the first time, understood what Christmas was. God tried to save man by giving his law through his priests and prophets, but the people he had created merely scattered before him. Finally, he became one of them, and in the person of Jesus, he led his creation to safety. What an amazing thing that God would come, incarnate a human body, and live as a man with the restraints of a man. That our Lord Jesus suffered 
that he knew loneliness. He knew tiredness. He knew pain. The God that we serve understands the human condition. He understands the plight that we currently find ourselves in. He understands sin. The God of the Bible that we have, that we read about in the Gospels, was filled with compassion. And he was moved with compassion. He would heal the broken and the sick. He brings sight to the blind. Brought healing and wholeness to the most of the broken people. The most broken. The most despised in the land. You know, this morning... I don't know, there may be a couple of people in here that don't know who Jesus is. Maybe you've never met him, never encountered him in a personal way. But this morning, I just want to pray that all of us this year would come to know who Jesus is in a deeper way. That the death of our relationship with him and the recognition of, of Jesus coming as a man, the significance of what that means, what that meant for the world, that within a couple hundred years, of the church being formed, that, that the Holy Spirit swept through the Roman Empire to the point that in order for the emperor to maintain political <clears throat> um, supremacy in the land, he had to bow his knee to, to Jesus. He had to name Christianity the state religion. You know, often we don't think about it in political streams. Until this Christmas, I've never really thought about the political implication of, of what happened when Jesus was born, what that meant for the Roman Empire. And, you know, we often focus on the spiritual implications of, of our own personal lives and, and, and the establishment of God's kingdom in a spiritual way. But the kingdom of God is about heaven coming to earth. It's about things conforming to the way God does things, but his will being fulfilled in our lives and in the world around us. You have been listening to a Cold Lake Community Church podcast. We hope that you've been blessed by this teaching from Cold Lake Community Church. Thank you for your continued support of this ministry. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families connect.